Welcome to the sermons and teachings from the Catalyst Fellowship with Ipai Michael. We hope the message you're about to listen to will edify you and cause you to experience exponential growth. And now, the message. And being confident of this, I know that I shall what? Remain and continue with you all for your what? Progress and joy in the faith. Well, one thing I forgot to mention is also these. We're going to have almost every month, there might be a believer, there might be a believer's Bible course every month. Almost, I'm, I'm not 100% sure, but there might be. And the reason is because there's a lot to bring you guys up to speed on, that I'm going to use the five hours to always just cover that at once. So, those of you that did not come, you are smiling at me everywhere, all around. <laughs> well, there's a recording. I hope you will be able to read. Because if you are not there, usually it's always harder to stream it later. So, but we're going to, we didn't finish. There's going to be part two this Saturday. It's this Saturday. So, we'll let you know if you had Some of you registered, though, you missed it. All right. Who is speaking here? The Apostle Paul. And who is he speaking to? The church where? In Philippia. In where? In Philippi. Alright, so he says, I am confident of this. I will remain and abide with you or remain and continue with you for your what? Progress and what? And join the faith. The first word there is the Greek word meno and the second word is the Greek word sumparameno. What does meno mean? Meno means to remain and not to depart. What does sumparameno mean there? Um, sumparameno is from three words which which is son or which are son, para, and meno. And altogether, it basically means to continue with someone and not depart. Amen. So he's saying he wants to remain with them. He wants to continue with them. And what is the end goal of him remaining with them? Well, he said that they would experience what? Progress. What's the Greek word for progress? Prokope. Say prokope. Which means progress, advancement, and profiting. He says, because I'm staying with you, you're going to experience this. I'm confident of this. I know I shall abide with you for your progress, for your progress, advancement. So, what you must understand is that there is something called progress in the faith. Say progress in the faith. Meaning, you have to grow in the faith. And yes, you are saved, but there's something called growth. Can I tell you something? Have a target for your spirituality. must not be the same as next year. I must grow. Desire growth. Because the Bible says he wants them to experience growth. And growth is the outcome of, 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 of a pastor working with you or, or being a part of a church. This is the outcome of discipleship. This is the outcome of, of any church community you join or church group you join. Because are you learning something? Meaning that if you are a part of any church and you are, you are not experiencing growth, there is a problem. Is it that you? Because it's not always the church. Or maybe the church. Chances are that you are in the wrong place. So, you must, you know, be able to mark what you are learning after three months. Am I growing? Am I praying better? Well, if you've never prayed three hours before, not in this church anymore, right? Not in this church anymore. Even though you slept in the evening. You shall pray it. 
Amen. So you're growing in prayer, you're growing in study. Well, if you've never done study before for more than two hours, well, not in this church. Because you did how many hours? Five hours of study. So you see what I'm saying? If, if you come to church and everything is sitting right with you, is it that you are lying to yourself? Or the pastor is not really telling you the truth? Because you'll be instructed. You'll be corrected. We're going to read the text that, that talks about that. So what I'm saying ultimately is that you must experience fortune. That's what the Apostle Paul is praying that these people experience. That's why he wants to stay with them. That they experience fordrance. But not only fordrance. He says what? Joy in the faith. Look at Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 15. He's praying for them. He says, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you. You see, pastor's prayer. I'm thankful for you. Brother, I'm thankful for you. Ekene, I'm thankful. But it's not just enough that I'm thankful for you. The Apostle Paul says that he's praying for them. He's remembering them in his prayer. He says, I cease not to give thanks for you. Make you mention of you in my prayer. That I'm always praying for you that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you what? The spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Which is what? Wisdom and revelation by the spirit. So I'm praying for you that you experience wisdom and setting structures for you that you grow. I'm setting, you know, I'm making meeting arrangements that you grow. I'm teaching you the things that will help you grow. Please, are you learning what I'm saying? So, I'm praying, I'm setting the structures. I'm setting an example as well. I'm instructing. I'm correcting. Amen. Because that's the job of a ministry gift. To instruct. So, when pastor is saying, why will you not come to church? And I say, why will pastor be talking to me like that? Well, that's my Please, are you getting something? That's my job. That's the job. That's why, you know, I think it was this one that was saying that, um, I think, was it Precious that asked that, oh, is your pastor not your friend? And the fellow said that, oh, your pastor cannot be your friend and stuff like that. And then she got it after. Well, that's why, because I need to scold you sometimes. Do you get it? I would need to tell you the truth when you don't want to hear the truth. Because that's my job. Are you listening to me? I, I'm telling you how church should be done. The apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. He wrote to the church in Galatia. He said, in Galatia, he said, who has bewitched you? Do you, you know what I mean? It's like, that's almost like in local terms, waiting they do you. <laughs> he says, who has bewitched you? That is them. He wrote to the church in Corinth. If you read the things he read, if they didn't have, have a good heart, they would not have received it right. If they didn't understand that mentorship, you know, that discipleship relationship and him being their pastor, they will not have received it rightly. He said, some of you are saying you are Paul. You have Apollos. <laughs> are you seeing what I'm saying? He, he, do you know the whole of the book of Corinthians from beginning to the, to first Corinthians, beginning to the end to be correct, is correction. In one and two and three, he was correcting them about, you know, them choosing one over another, the division in the church. He continued to go. He spoke to them about food offered to idols. He spoke to them about head covering. He spoke to them about speaking in tongues. Because they were very expressive in the gift. But the one was much because someone just carried my car and preached. And it's like, no, that's not the way to do it. 
Because if you speak in tongues, you edify yourself. If you prophesy, you edify the church. Please, are you getting what I'm saying? So he's saying, I would rather that you prophesy. It's a correction. Many of the times, the common conversations that you might have with people who mentor you will be instructive and corrective. Are you getting what I'm saying? It will be instructive and correct. And you must be willing to respond. You must be willing to take those words as you know, words of wisdom, words of instruction, and take heed and correct yourself. So, your mentor, your pastor, is not the person that you are supposed to hide your flaws from and run away from. No. It's the person you're supposed to be able to tell what is going on that he might instruct you and correct you. That is what accountability truly is. Are you learning something? That is what accountability truly is. You know, Paul could instruct Timothy and tell Timothy that, you know, he should, he should, he should take alcohol for his tummy issues. The only way Paul would have known that is in Timothy what I'm saying. He said, Timothy told him. So, I'm going to teach about discipleship in one of, one of our services, but what I'm telling you is that the desire and the, the joy of any pastor is the growth, spiritual growth. I, I'm not even talking financial growth. Amen? <laughs> I want you to, to be fine and have financial, you know, uh, success. But my primary responsibility is not even your finances. It's first your soul. First of all, that you're saved. And second of all, that you experience this growth that the Apostle Paul is talking about. So this is why we might not do business Sunday in our church. Don't think it's because we don't care about you. I'm putting it out there, right? So that people know. (laughs) So people know. Amen. Well, he's praying for them that they experience growth. So every time I want to discern, I want to see what is going on with you and say, you know what? You need growth. You need to grow in this part. You need to grow in this part. You need to grow in this part. The problem is that you make my job harder if the structures are set for you, you don't follow. Are you getting my point? It makes my job harder. Well, he's praying that they grow. The second thing is that he's praying. He says that that you that he, he says having his confidence, I know I shall abide with you all for your what? Fortrans as progress in the faith. And the second thing is what? Joy in the faith. Well, what is joy in the faith? Joy in the faith is that exceeding that you have about the things of God. So yes, we're going to do everything to improve, you know, the music, the sound and all of those things, but there is a type of joy that is not circumstantial. Are you getting what I'm saying? A joy that comes with doing the things of God, meaning if I'm not here preaching on Sunday, my body will be biting me. I wish you knew how tired I was this morning. I was with my notes yesterday night and I was, do you know, have you tried to edit notes when you are based on the floor? What would you spend five minutes doing? I was on it twice. I'm not joking. I was on it twice. So I just was like, why are you wasting your time? Just go and sleep. So, I said, I woke up very early this morning. I did not stay with coffee that made my eye open. I was feeling it in my brain. I was feeling a bit in my stomach this morning. Find joy, I find delight. This is 
is delightful to me. It's not like work to me. Even though it's, it, it can be stressful on my body, but in my mind is delightful. That is what joy in the faith is. Prayer can seem stressful, but can you do it regardless? Enjoying it. Are you getting the point? And that's where we want to get to. Too. Bible study can be, well, yesterday all of you said it didn't feel like five hours. That is joy in the faith. Because you are experiencing a delightful experience, even though your body is saying, ah, you're going to die, you're going to die. But you know that doing this is going to change my life, so I'm going to do it happy. Amen. So, you're not going to be forced to do anything when you experience delight. Are you getting it? Let me teach you about fake delight. Fake joy in the faith is that feeling that you get. I know, do you know all these things out of my notes? It's what the Holy Spirit is helping me to instruct you on. I'm instructing you on now. There's something, it's not called fake delight, but I, I think of it as, as that. Do you know that feeling when you want to go to a church because of the worship, the music? Eh? That's fake delight. Let me explain what I mean. You found something that delights you in that service. And it's, and it's, it's I will not call it fake delight. I say it's a shadow of the actual delight you should be having. Because you know that feeling where you want to go for the, because, ah, this thing is hot. I must go there and experience it. Well, that is how actual delight should be. But this time, it's not about just the music. It's about your experience throughout the service, both in the word to be edified, in the, in the worship to be edified as well, in every part of the service to be edified. Delight can also come in things like giving. Giving might not be easy, but the person who is experiencing true delight, true joy in the faith, is somebody who will give cheerfully, even though it's hard. Cheerful giving is not always comfortable. He's not saying comfortable giving. He's saying cheerful giving. So, you can say, you know what? Things are tough, but I've consecrated myself to give my tithe. I'm going to continue to give. Do you know what I'm saying? I'm not even talking just giving to church. I'm talking, there's a church member who needs something. And you just know that going to be hard for me to give, but this is my duty as a child of God to other believers. So I'm not going to do it like it is duty, like it is work. I'm going to do it in a delightful way. So one day, you know, my wife calls and says, oh, um, someone from the church she, she attends in the U.S. wants to stay in our place. And I said, oh, okay, I'm going to clear out the office. And, and she was like, ah, you know, everyone think about your negotiate that she was thinking maybe I'll think about it and say oh where's person going to stay where's person going to this and I, like ideally I should have thought of that but there is a delightful part of my heart that is ready in my that no believer would ever be in need and I'll not be able to supply so that was you see just without thinking I was ready to supply the need before I now even started to think that ah is he a guy or a girl are, we going, are, we going to, are you getting what I'm saying that's the delight I'm talking about because it has become making the things we have available has become joyful for me rather than dutiful. So, when we are buying things, we are thinking that ah, there might be somebody who will. When we were renting our house, we were thinking ah, we might house somebody now that is a church member. Maybe the person just came to Canada. We thought of all those things just casually. That's delight. Delight is that experience where 
Well, evangelism is not always delightful to everybody at first, right? But delight is that express where I know that, ah, they are going to talk to me anyhow. But, take it for Jesus. Till then, I take it for Jesus. Because are you getting this? That's delight. So, the first Paul says, I will continue with you for your what? Quadrants and what? Joy in the faith. And so, these are the things you want to check. This is, these are marks of growth. Marks of spiritual growth. Am I truly advancing in my faith? Am I praying better? Am I studying better? Am I evangelizing more? Am I giving more? These are marks of growth. If you're doing one more than the other, you need to balance up. So I must be praying. I must be studying. See, sometimes eh, you might go through phases where you are not happy to give. Structure will keep you. But you must not always be in that space. You must then look for the root problem. Why am I not happy to pray, Seth? What is the issue? Amen. Maybe I need a review. This is how you solve problems as a believer. Why am I not happy to give? Well, maybe I've not, you know, grounded myself in the understanding of what Christ has done for me and how much I owe to him because of what he has done. What do you do? Look for the sermon about it. Do you see what I'm saying? And then you pray about it. Well, why am I not evangelizing? Small problem. Well, look for sermons on it. When I struggle with things, I look for sermon about it and I listen. That leads me to pray. That solves the problem. Have you learned something? So the Apostle Paul is praying that you experience fordrance and that you experience joy of it. Well, I'm not going to go through the whole introduction because I've used most of my introduction to see what, you know, <laughs> the Lord asked me to say to you guys. So I'm just going to go straight to the book of Daniel. I think I've repeated that introduction five million times to you. So you know it, right? The Bible is written, the Old Testament was written, what? For us and not to us. Well, you know it. You know that the Bible is both a literary material and a divine book. You know it a bit. You know that there are different writing styles in the Bible, different genres in the Bible. And what style of writing is Daniel? Narrative and apocalyptic literature. The first six are narratives, and the last six are what? Apocalyptic literature. Um, what else? So you know the introduction. So <laughs> we can just go ahead. I want to ra- I want to speed this up so I can take your questions towards the end of this service. Um, all right. Um, okay, so Daniel, why is Daniel not in the book, the, the section of your Bible that is um, the wisdom books? Why is it in the prophetic side? That is, why is it not listed with Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes? Why is it listed with prophets, Jeremiah, and the likes? Because it contains apocalyptic literature, apocalyptic prophecy also, if you can call it that, right? So because of that, it was added with, that, with the rest of the books that are prophetic books. Okay, so we stopped in Daniel chapter 9 um, verse 20, right? Okay, uh-uh, just to the end. Okay, so Daniel chapter 9 we stopped there and in the beginning of Daniel chapter 9 
you know, we read that in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, in the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the book the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that it will accomplish 70 years in the desolation of Jerusalem. Well, Daniel is reading the book of, of, of Jeremiah now. And at this point, Jeremiah is probably dead, but I also explained to you that Jeremiah would have been, you know, a, a prophet at the, at the time when the boys were taken captive. Are you getting what I'm saying? At the point when the boys were taken captive. Because Jeremiah, you know, documented the things the Lord was telling to him to say to Israel that if they don't repent, they are going to spend 70 years serving Babylon. And that's what this is telling you. That, you know, by the words of Jeremiah, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolation of Jerusalem. So, um, and I showed you some of the text in, in, in Jeremiah that actually attests to what Daniel is saying, where Jeremiah is saying in Jeremiah chapter 25 verse 11, he says, and this whole land shall be in desolation and an astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. Do you see that? Um, there's also Jeremiah chapter 29 verse 10 where the Bible says, for thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I would visit you and perform my good word to you and cause you to return to this place. So do you see that? So Jeremiah would have been warning the Israelites that if you guys don't repent, God is going to send you to exile and you're going to be there and you're going to serve. Well, the 70 years, I don't think is literal 70 years. I think many times when the Bible uses numbers to um, dictate the amount of time, it is, and I think that's just the answer. What I just said is the answer. that The, the Bible is not necessarily giving you the specific, not every time, but in many of the situations, especially prophetic books, and especially in apocalyptic literature, it's not telling you that that is the specific number of years. It, they count time differently from our calendar. Meaning when it says 70 years, it might not necessarily be 70 literal, literal years as we think of it. It might also be the completion of an age which is counted by seven for them. Are you seeing what I'm saying? So, usually there are different ways that those things are counted and so you have to you know, study deeper to realize the actual you know, meaning. And sometimes you might just not get it. You might not be trying to tell you the exact years. You might just be telling you that you know what they'll be there for a long season. Does that make sense? Alright. Well, we read this and we saw Daniel praying and he prayed and there were about four things we saw in his prayer. The first was that there was an invocation and a con confession where he was worshipping God and he was confessing. Um, and then there was the Deuteronomy theology. Do you remember that? Deuteronomy theology. And what is that? The idea that if they, if they sin, they will go to exile. But if they cry to the Lord, the Lord would what? Restore them. Alright? Well, there was that. And then there was the statement of punishment where he was talking about God's punishment to them for what they've done. And then there was finally what? Appeal for help. Do you remember? And then we ended by talking about the second exodus. How that there's going to be, there was supposed to be a second deliverance of Israel. And how that it was a shadow of the deliverance from sin. That was on Thursday. That's why a lot of people don't remember. <laughs> I was like, why are they looking at me like, <laughs> that was on Thursday. Oh my God. And you didn't spray me. I told you that when you miss service, make sure you spray me before Sunday. Okay. Well, I'm just going to continue from verse 17, which is the interpretation of this vision. Of, of, of not a vision, rather, but this is sort of like what happened after Daniel's prayer. Is that clear? So let's read Daniel chapter 9, verse 17 to 19. 
Let's read together. I want to go. Now, therefore, our God, hear the prayer of your servants and his supplications for the Lord's sake. Cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, which is desolate. Remember what is happening. Daniel is like, we are in exile. Maybe the 70 years has come to an end. Maybe they go back. So he's telling God, please. Verse 18, let's read together. Oh my God, incline your ears and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolation and the city which is called by your name. For we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. Next verse. Oh Lord, hear. Oh Lord, forgive. Oh Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake. My God, for your city and your people are what? Called by your name. Alright, so verse 20. Now, let's go one to go. Now, while I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin and the sin of my people, wait. So, confession of sin is okay here. Because this text is not written to you. Remember what I said? It's for you. So, you must also understand with respect to Daniel's time. His confessing his sin does not mean he's teaching you a method to pray as a New Testament believer. Are you learning what I'm saying? He is confessing his sin. Why? Jesus has not died for his own sin. So confession of sin is a show of accountability and faith in God. Are you getting what I'm saying? To save them. Does not mean you need to confess your sin before your sins are forgiven. Well, confession of sin is never what causes forgiveness of sin. The death of Jesus is what causes forgiveness of sin. Amen. And I'm not saying... You don't need to feel or not feel. You don't need to acknowledge that you've done wrong. I'm just saying the confession of the sin is not what gets you forgiveness of sin. Unlike what people used to think that if you don't, well, what if you don't remember? (laughs) Do you get what I'm saying? So it's not the confession that gets you the forgiveness. It is faith in the death of Christ that gets you the forgiveness. Is that clear? Is that balanced enough? Good. Now, it says, now, while I was speaking, praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord, my God, for the holy mountain of God, it says, yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, let's read together, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. Next verse. And he informed me and talked with me and said, oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. Next verse. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved, therefore consider the matter and understand the vision. So wait, he says that the decree went out. Well, theologians believe that, especially because at the time of of Daniel's speaking, it sort of coincides with the period that Cyrus made a decree. That decree was what ended the book of that decree was what ended, I think, that decree was what ended the book of Nehemiah, started the book of Ezra, if I'm, if I'm not wrong. And that decree was when Cyrus said, the people of Jerusalem can leave now and go and rebuild Jerusalem. So a new decree went out. Please, are you learning something? Hope you are not confused. Who is confused? Is it clear? Okay. So, what I'm saying is this. There was a decree. What is that decree? 
Cyrus is saying now that you guys have been captive here for a long time, but now it's time for you to go back and go and rebuild your town. So the angel is saying, he said, I've come to tell you for you are greatly beloved. And remember, what was Daniel thinking about that? Ah, is our time not up? When are we going to leave? Well, the angel is saying, I've come to tell you for your great people, and therefore consider the matter and understand the vision. Next verse. 70 weeks are what? Can we read it like a master? I want to go. 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Well, go back. 70 weeks is not actually 70 weeks. The Hebrew word weeks there is actually seven. How many days are in a week? So, newer translations put weeks there. But in the Hebrew, it's actually seven. So, what he was saying is that 77s are determined. So, now you know that it cannot be weeks. Are you getting this? 77s, meaning seven cycles of whatever he might be using to calculate 70 times. Does that make sense? No? Let me say it again. Seven, the, the newer translations use week because a week is a cycle of seven. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. But what the actual Hebrew says is 77 are determined for your people. So the seven is not necessarily our calendar week. It could have been, let me think about that in that cycle of seven, Sabbaths. It can be 70 Sabbaths. Sabbath is also seven, but special Sabbaths, which are those feasts that they had, you know, in specific times. It can be 70 of that. So what he's saying is that 70 cycles of seven, and I don't know what he's using to calculate the seven. It can be 70 completion of ages. Because seven also means the completion of an age. That making sense. So 77s are determined for your people and for your holy city. So Daniel is like, ah, our well, exile is probably coming to an end. Well, Gabriel is saying, 77s are determined for your people and for your holy city. Please, are you learning something? He says, so he's responding. That, that's Gabriel responding. Now I want to list out the things he says for your people. He says, number one. To finish the transgression. So there's going to be, write this down. There's going to be the end of transgression, number one. What else does he say? Let's read the next one. One to go. To make an end of what? Sin. So there's going to be the end of sin. He says to what? Make reconciliation for what? Iniquity. So there's going to be atonement for the wicked. That's reconciliation for iniquity, right? Then there's going to be Number four, to bring in what? Everlasting righteousness. That is what? Bringing in everlasting righteousness, right? Then there is what? To seal up vision and prophecy, which is the sealing of vision and prophecy. And then number six is what? The anointing of what? The most holy. So the first two describe the end of sin. What does it mean? Is it saying the end of sin among God's people or the end of sin amongst all people are you seeing what I'm saying? That's a question to ask. 
the third, and like the rest, I think it's the first three that basically talks about the end of sin because it talks about the end of transgression, the end of sin, then it talks about atonement. Atonement is a bit different because when it comes to atonement, atonement is sort of like you have paid for the sin. I get in this. And so there can be reconciliation. Then in number four, from four to six, it says bringing in everlasting. That's almost like God's act now. Are you seeing that? Bringing in everlasting righteousness. Then there is what? Sealing of vision and prophecy. And the sealing there is not necessarily that vision and prophecy will stop, but it's talking about authentication, confirmation. You know, the word seal doesn't always mean to stop. It also means to authenticate, to seal that something is right. So, it will sort of be an authentication or a confirmation of prophecies. Are you getting this? Then, number six is now what? Anointing of the most holy. Well, some people think it's the anointing of the most holy place. Some people think it's the anointing of the most holy one. I'm not sure which of the two. Are you getting this? But it gets a bit complex because he, he decides to break it down in verse 25. So let's go to verse 25. Now pay attention, don't get carried away. Are you all understanding to here? Verse 25, let's read together. I want to go. You know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem, you see the command, what's the command? Until the Messiah, the prince, there shall be what? It's getting more complicated. So now he's breaking it down some more. And he says, from when you are asked to go and rebuild, till the Messiah, the prince, there's going to be what? Seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. He says, the street shall be built again and the wall even trouble sometimes. So right restoration of Jerusalem to the coming of the Messiah as number one. He's breaking it down right. Right? Verse 26. Listen, I, I, I want this to make sense to you because you will never have trouble with the book of Daniel if you know this. Are you seeing what I'm saying? I think I've tried my best to touch every single thing that looks confusing and explain it. Alright? Let's read verse 26. Are you all there? Alright, let's read together. One to go. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall, shall be cut off. So after the what? 62 sevens, which he talked about before. It says the Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood till the end of the war of desolations are determined. Next verse. Then he shall form a covenant with many for what? One week. But the middle of the week he shall bring an end to what? Sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes what? Desolate even until the consummation which is determined and is poured out on what? On the desolate. This is still NKG we are reading, right? Alright, so it's pretty much a bit difficult to try and break down this and understand it in a way because it sounds a bit confusing. Well, the clearest explanation I can give to you, and I'll also tell you what I believe, alright, is this. He's describing, first of all, 
exile to the time of Nehemiah. Which is exile to the time of the rebuilding of Jerusalem. That's the first. Then he described Nehemiah to Jesus. Because he said to the Messiah is cut off. That means to the death of Jesus. That's another age. Is it making sense now? Do you remember our story from Genesis? You remember? Where did we stop in that history? Exile. Now, furthermore, Gabriel is explaining to him now that you think the exile is done, but these are the things that will happen. For 76 sevens was what he called it, right? Was it 76 sevens? 62 sevens, whichever it is. He says, for that period, it's going to be from when now that the decree has gone out that all of it should go and rebuild till the Messiah comes. He now counts another time. In that second counting, he counts from, so from exile to Nehemiah, which is when they are in exile, from Nehemiah, which was the rebuild of the temple, to Jesus, that's the second age. Then the second age is now from Jesus to the after year, or to the years after. What that means is that he begins to talk about something. It says that from the going forth of the command to, the rest, to restore and build Jerusalem until what? Messiah the prince, there shall be what? Seven weeks and 62 weeks. This is where we started from. This is who to who? Rebuilding of Jerusalem to Jesus is what? Seven weeks, that's seven sevens and 62 sevens, right? The street shall be built again and even the wall. Now go to 26. After the 62 sevens, the Messiah shall be what? Cut off. So, in the first one, he didn't say he was going to die. He said, till when the Messiah comes. Are you getting it? So, there's an age between when they rebuild Jerusalem to when Jesus comes. There's an age from when Jesus comes to when Jesus dies. Are you learning? He now says, and the people and the prince shall come and destroy the city and sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood. And till the end of the war and desolation are determined. Next verse. It says that the mark of the beast is, is, is a copycat of the mark of Christ. Of the mark of God. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because the, this talks about them putting a mark on the head of those in Jerusalem. And you see what is happening. What is happening there? It says, I put a mark on the head of the four men who sigh and cry over all the abomination that are done within. To the others, he said in my hearing, go after them through and kill all. Do not let your eyes spare. So what happened? One was to go, and all the ones that were against the abomination in the city, he was to put a mark on them. But every other one, the guys were to go and do what? Kill. Well, I wasn't sure who this was. I was doing this. And the Bible wasn't clear. But what made it more clearer to me is Ezekiel chapter 1 verse 26. This is how I do Bible study. Alright, I come to a conclusion based on what I see in other parts. Are you getting what I'm reading? What I'm explaining to you today? Okay. You are getting there? Okay. <laughs> it's like after my teaching, you just go and drink water. <laughs> Alright. Ezekiel chapter 1 and verse 26. Let's read together one to go. And above the firmament, over their heads, was the likeness of a throne in appearance like sapphire stone. On the likeness of the throne, was a likeness with the appearance of a man high above it. 
also from the appearance of his waist upward. So, they are talking about the man now on the throne. From his waist upward, what did they see? There was an appearance of color of amber with the appearance of fire all around it, right? And from the appearance of his waist downward, I saw, as it were, the appearance of bright fire all around, like the appearance of a rainbow in a cloud on a rainy day. So was the appearance of the brightness all around it. And there was appearance like the likeness of the glory of God. So when I saw it, I did what? I fell on my face. Now, in Ezekiel 2.1, he says, And he said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet and I will speak to you. Then the Spirit entered me and, he, and when he spoke to me and set me on my feet, I heard him who spoke. He said to me, Son of man, I'm sending you to the children to save my children. Well, who is speaking? God. Because it's only God that will say, I'm sending you to my children. Is this clear? To save my children. Does that make sense? Well, so this got me a bit more convinced with the appearance of the guy in Daniel's story. <laughs> the appearance of the person or the figure <laughs> in Daniel's story. And this sort of convinced me more that he had to probably have been God that Daniel was seeing because he was, you know, he was shocked. He didn't describe the face, but he described like the, the, the clothes he was wearing. He described, you know, the things he saw around him. So, let's go back to Daniel. Now, Daniel said only him saw the vision, but he affected everybody around him because they were scared. Are you getting it? And he said, Therefore, I was left alone, and when I saw this great vision, and no strength remained in me, but my vigor was stung to frailty in me, I, and I retained no strength. Verse 9. Yet I heard the sound of his word, and while I heard the sound of his word, I was in deep sleep on my face to the ground. And suddenly, a hand touched me, which made me tremble on my knees and on, my, on the palms of my hands. So, well, Daniel sees a figure. He doesn't know what that means. He doesn't, he doesn't tell us the rest of the vision he had. Chapter 10 is the introduction of a three parts listing as present across 11 and 12 on the same vision. He doesn't tell us what that vision is in chapter 10. He only tells us the part of it which is that he saw that figure which is sort of like God. But now, at the same time, whenever Daniel sees anything, what happens? An angel comes to interpret to him. So, well, now he feels someone touch his hand. Are you getting this? And then the person who touched his hand, you know, picked him up. And as he picked him up, he said he was trembling in his knees and in the palm of his hands, which is basically like he was pretty much scared. Like, okay, what is going on? All right? And then in verse 11, I want us to read verse 11 together. I want to go. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright. For I have now been sent to you. Well, you know that this cannot have been God. He says, now I've been sent to you. While, and while he was speaking these words to me, I stood trembling. Then he said to me, what? Do not fear, Daniel. For from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humble yourself before God, your words were heard. And I've come because of your words. Verse 13. Prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. And behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. Well, another reason why it could not have been God. So it means there are two different things that are going on here. There is the image Daniel saw, and then there is the person that touched Daniel. It is God. Who is the prince of Persia that is stopping? Well, who is the prince of Persia? Is it the great prince of Persia? <laughs> well, and then I don't think that there's any human that could have stopped the angel. 
So who is the prince of Persia? Well, we get a sense when he says that Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. This must have been a spiritual figure associated with the land of Persia. That's my closest explanation. Can I explain it further to you? Because it leads to many questions. And that means the nations have spirits or angels over them. But that is the interpretation of this. Because he says, read it, he says, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. And behold, Michael, one of the chief, meaning the prince is not an actual prince, is made of the same thing that Michael is made of. Angel Michael is made of. So, <laughs> so well I, the only other indication to this I can tell you is in Deuteronomy and in, in, in Deuteronomy <laughs> this is not a speculation but I would only teach you I would teach you but I, I would only tell you that <laughs> I'm in between and it's okay to be in between. And it's okay to confess that I'm in between. I don't have to know everything. I'll be sure. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 32. This is the safest way to do ministry. <laughs> say why you don't know it. <laughs> don't go and teach people rubbish. I'll be, you know, say, hey, show me that. <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> I, I've heard opinions on it. I've just decided. It, it actually, it's, this is pretty clear. I think it's true. I just don't know how it affects. I'm thinking through it and I'm thinking of how it affects, you know, the rest of because people will now begin to say, you know, that there are, there are spirits over kingdoms and nations. And it might be true, honestly, because you know the Bible tells us that that you know God defeated the gods of Egypt. And the word gods of Egypt there, whenever the Bible talks about those gods, it never talks to them as though they have any real power. There was no real power that the gods of Egypt had. It would have been the forces that aligned with their delusion he was talking about. Are you getting what I'm saying? And, and that's why it begins to make sense to me that in the Old Testament, you know, there's always an identification of forces that you couldn't believe in. Not that they are strong forces against God, but they are forces that sort of empower their delusion more and more and they believe in. And they see things work because they believe in those things. Are you seeing what I'm saying? You know, so, and this is the closest thing I can say about it. Deuteronomy chapter 32. See, I myself am in the school of the study of the Old Testament. I think I want to even go to school some more just for <laughs> the study of the Old Testament because I think there's a lot in it. I think I, I used to think I loved the Old Testament for that reason, but I'm getting to a point where I'm finding joy <laughs> in the Old Testament a lot more. But see this in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 1 to 8. Are you there? Let's read together. I want to go. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass, and like showers upon the head. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. The rock, his word, is perfect. For all your ways are just. He is a God of faithfulness without iniquity. Just and upright is he. They have dealt corruptly with him, they are no longer 
these children because they are I'll still read the rest to you. Because they are blemished. They are crooked and twisted and twisted generation. Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is he not your father who created you, who made you and established you? Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you. Your elders and they will tell you. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed borders of people according to the number of the sons of God. What does the Bible say? According to the numbers of what? Yours says what? Sons of God. The screen says what? The original Septuagint text actually says Bene Elohim. And Bane or Bene Elohim is the word used to refer to the sons of God, like the sons of God that gathered in Job. They were angels and other creations of God. Newer translations change it to children of Israel, trying to sort of interpret it with the context. But he says that God divided the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God. As though God gave angels territories over kingdoms. Well, like I said, <laughs> I don't know. I'm just telling you a, a point of view I got about it, right? And it makes sense because actually, when you check the original Septuagint, this is what you see sons of God. You see that yours says children of Israel, but the actual word is sons of God. And it's almost the same. It's almost the same argument you get when you see that text that says that and the sons of, of God came in with the daughters of men. Talking about Noah's story. Some people have tried to explain sons of God there as men that were living on higher mountains. But Ben Elohim, majority of the times in the Old Testament, is referring to angels. I'm not here for it today. Another day I'll explain it to you. Let's go back to Daniel. <laughs> we have questions to take. So, hope you've all written your questions. Yes? Yes? You must have questions. Because <laughs> I, I want to take your questions. So, let's go back to Daniel chapter 10. I'm going to round up. This is what I'm going to round up. So, um, well, we stopped in verse what? 14. So now I've come to make you understand what will happen to your people in the latter days. For the vision refers to many days yet to come. Next verse. When he had spoken such words to me, I turned my face towards the ground and became speechless. He says, and suddenly one having the likeness of the sons of men touched my lip. So, this is a different thing now. This is sons of men. I get what I'm saying. He touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke, saying to him who stood before me, my Lord. Because of the vision, my sorrows have overwhelmed me and I have retained no strength. Let's read together. For how can this servant of my Lord talk with you, my Lord? As for me, no strength remains in me, nor is any breath left in me. Next verse. Then again, one having the likeness of man touched me and strengthened me. This is powerful. You're seeing Daniel being strengthened. You know, next verse. And he said, 
O man greatly beloved, fear not, peace be to you. Be strong, yes, be strong. So when he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Next verse, then he said, do you know why I have come to you? And now I must return to fight with who? Prince of Persia. And when I have gone forth, indeed the prince of, is my explanation seeming possible or probable? Next verse. But I will tell you what is noted in the scripture of truth. No one upholds me against this except Michael. So he calls Michael. Are you seeing that my solution might just be true? Next verse. That's all. Alright, so we're done with Daniel chapter 10. So, let me put it all together for you. This is just the introduction of the vision. In 11, there will be a bit more of, you know, an explanation into what is truly going on, you know, and what the vision really is. And then I think by Thursday, I should be done with this series. I'm going to finish it all on Thursday. And then we'll, we'll stop hearing this time visions. And, uh, <laughs> well, let's take a few questions and then we round up service. Did you learn something at least? There's not, there's not much I can theologize it like you know, in this part because it's still ongoing. So, I can't really tell you how this applies to you or anything just yet. You know, at this point, we just understand what we've read. Let me tell you something that will help you. Read the book of Daniel before you come to church. It will help you. Go and read assignments. I'm speaking as I'm alive. Assignments. Read everything. 